0: So I have got a title for this talk, Unusually, which is How Mara the Demon Was Transformed and His Future Buddhahood Assured. Dead dogs, showers of money, and shape-shifting in early Buddhist stories. (laughs) So what I'd like us to do uh, this evening is to enter into a magical world. So the magical world is a world of stories, myths, legends, a dream world. So I'd like us to leave the kind of planning department and the rational inquisitive mind behind and just allow ourselves to enter into complete bonkersness um if that's an actual word which i don't think it is (laughs) it is now yeah so the world we're going to enter into this evening is a world of the avadanas this is the world of very early buddhism um so it's the time the time when these were formed um uh, was the Buddha, at that time the Buddha had died, but um, he hadn't died that long ago, uh, maybe 200, 300 years ago. And the tradi- Buddhist tradition was kept alive by storytellers. So the way that people would learn about Buddhism and, and uh, the Buddha Dharma was uh, by storytellers who'd go from village to village. So the early Sangha collected stories about the Buddha, his contemporary disciples, and his future disciples. And um, these stories were were written down at a later date in Sanskrit and Pali. So the Sanskrit stories are called the Avadanas, as I've said. And um, eventually they were taken very seriously and incorporated into the canonical texts. Um, Um, For those of you who know about Buddhist texts, they were um, accorded a special status and lumped together with um, the discourses of the Buddha, the sutras, um, the rules for the monks and nuns, the Vinaya, and the analysis of mental states, the the Abhidharma. And these were, interestingly, the first Buddhist texts to be written down, um, as early as um, some of them in the 3rd century BCE or in the first millennium. So they were very, very early texts. And what I quite like is the story about um, the British Library. So the British Library gets some texts, and there's some scholars. I do have, by the way, quite a vivid imagination, so maybe it's not entirely correct. But in my vivid imagination, what I can see is I can see these sort of scholars, and they've got these texts, and they can't work out why the earliest texts that were written down in Buddhism have such big writing and are in such short sentences so they're sort of thinking why have they got such big writing and such short sentences well of course they were prompts they weren't meant to be written down as kind of cohesive buddhist texts they were prompts for storytelling a bit like i've got here um but they puzzled over this and puzzled over this and puzzled and they couldn't work it out for ages and then finally they got it ah that's what it meant so, um, yeah, when uh, Panti Sangharachita talks about the avadhanas, he says, flame is lit from flame and ultimately life's inspiration springs not from theories about life, but from life itself. So we tend to think of Buddhist doctrines as kind of lists or formulas or quite dry, rational teachings. Um, but actually, throughout the Buddhist world, these stories became much more sort of well-known than those lists and doctrines. And in a way, they were keeping the heart of Buddhism alive after the Buddha had gone. Because, of course, it's not enough to just have doctrine. I've been doing quite a bit of study recently on a very famous Buddhist who you may may have come across called Dr. Ambedkar. And his real... Um, kind of work, was trying to see how Buddhism could, be, uh, could flourish in the conditions of modern India, um, but also in the modern global world. And one of the things he says is we need stories. He says, every great religion has been built on faith, but faith cannot be assimilated if presented in the form of creeds and abstract dogmas. It needs something on which the imagination can fasten, some myth or epic or gospel, what is called in journalism a story so that's what we need to really kind of help the buddhist culture take off we need stories not just dry intellectual doctrine we need stories we need sort of joy and interest and fun because of course transformation is led not from the head but from the heart and this is the very much the culture in which these stories developed they they're about the heart they're not about the head this is a big justification by the way of uh, some quite interesting stories which you shouldn't take too literally (laughs) so we're going to look at one of those stories uh, this evening and it starts with uh, two characters so I'm just going to explain those two characters so the first character is Upagupta so Upagupta is an enlightened being so Upagupta he's an enlightened being he's a monk and he lived about hundred a hundred years after the Buddha's death. And he's uh, got a reputation of a man of as a man of great wisdom and simplicity of lifestyle. He's the kind of archetypal, calm, disciplined monk. And then the other character in the story is Mara. So Mara is a kind of demon figure who some of you may have come across actually. He's the kind of sort of yeah, so a slightly demonic figure, but in a jokey kind of way, not in a really heavy sort of evil way, but in a jokey way. Um, and he's the one who tempts the calm and disciplined monks away from the spiritual life. Actually, it's not just calm, disciplined monks. He tempts all of us away from the spiritual life. He's sometimes called the Lord of the wheel of birth and death or the uh, Lord of limitations He wants us to stay in our habitual uh, habits and he wants to undermine our progress. What I quite like in the early Buddhist scriptures is he's called the friend of negligence (laughs) or the cousin of the careless. So, yes, friend of negligence. And he's a shapeshifter. He's a shapeshifter who comes in different forms in different times. He's the sort of soft voice that whispers in your ear, you can't do it. Like, everyone else can do it, but you can't. Because you've got some special reason why you, of all people in the whole cosmos, can't do it. and make, You can't make any spiritual progress. Give up now. Or, um, what right have you to practice the Dharma? You in particular. Um, or you might come in the form, traditionally comes in the form of incredibly attractive men or women, who just as you're getting to that point in meditation... Comes sliding in, wiggling his hips, um, which could or could not be attractive, actually. Um, (laughs) uh, That sort of comes, my grandmother said, um, this is some wisdom from my grandmother, which was, never trust a man with snaky hips. (laughs) So, yeah, never trust Mara with snaky hips. Uh, That's a digression. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Buddhist scriptures. Um... (laughs) Or he comes in the form of demons to uh, frighten you and stir up your rage. I remember being on solitary retreat once and uh, I was doing really, really well and I was really experiencing a lot of meta in meditation. And then I'd kind of get this thought of like some incident where I hadn't reacted at the time, but then suddenly in North Wales, in the rain and in the company of sheep, i just decided that this person had really disrespected me and i decided to have a big reaction about this incident now three years later when it meant nothing to me at the time it's that kind of thing like yeah but do you remember what they said um and uh you know that kind of feeling where your your rage gets kind of whipped up um even against your will sometimes so he's like the devil he's like the kind of demon devilly sort of figure but as I said, a bit more jokey, uh, a bit more of a sympathetic approach. And it's interesting that that kind of figure in the Buddhist tradition, no one attempts to fight him on his own level. No one sort of argues with him, really. They just, uh, the, the trick is in the Buddhist scriptures is to recognize him. So he's a shapeshifter. He comes in many forms. You've just got to recognize what shape he's come in. And um, he will disappear sad and disappointed if you recognize him. So there's a wonderful little story about the Buddha where um, the Buddha's sitting in meditation in the forest and of course Mara sidles up to him and says, um, basically, are you alone here because you don't have any friends? (laughs) And the Buddha says, no, I'm alone here because I'm experiencing the bliss of solitude, actually. And he said, oh, okay, okay. So, well, you might have crossed the flood of samsara, but I really don't understand why it is you have to take other people with you. And he says, oh, well, there are seekers who ask. There are seekers who want to know the truth. And then there's a lovely little kind of repeated phrase where Mara says, a crow there was who walked around, a stone that seemed a lump of fat. Shall I find something soft in this? And is there anything tasty here? He finding nothing tasty there made off. And we from Gotama depart in disappointment too like the crow that tried the stone. And then it says, full of sorrow, he let his loot slip from under his arm and then the unhappy demon vanished. So he's a little bit of a joke. You kind of feel a bit, I feel a bit sorry for Mara quite a lot of the time. So anyway, so these are the two characters. We've got Mara and we've got Uppagupta. And the scene is that Uppagupta is asked to give a Dharma talk. So everyone's very excited. He's got a wonderful reputation, such a calm, sensitive, kind man, Um, really knows his stuff. And a big crowd gathers. Now, it's traditional that when Dharma teachers speak, they pour out the truth slowly. So first of all comes the talk on generosity, ethics and going to heaven. And then when the minds of the people are really prepared, really calm and lucid and clear... The speaker tells them about the truth, the way things are, tells them about wisdom and the insight needed to break the bonds of samsara altogether. So this is the traditional form of uh, a dharma talk, which I pro- should probably pay a bit more attention to. But uh, anyway, we're just going to have stories this evening. So so it is with Upa Gupta. He starts off with a talk on generosity, ethics and um, going to heaven. And the listeners' minds become very uh, positive and receptive. Their minds are open and clear and lucid and ready for the truth. Traditionally, it's said that the clean cloth takes the dye. So here, the minds of the listeners are clean, clear, just ready for the truth, ready for the way things are. And just at that critical moment when Upagupta is just preparing himself to really hit him with the truth, um, along comes Mara. Who suddenly showers the audience with strings of pearls and all their attention just vanishes. Ooh, look pretty. Oh, look great. Oh, wow, I'll completely forget Upagupta and just pick up these strings of pearls. So the next day he thinks, well, I'll try again. So um, of course he gets a bigger audience because people say Upagupta teaches the Dharma and showers of pearls fall down from the sky. So it's enormous crowd comes and uh, I hope thinks, well, maybe that's a good thing. He starts to give a talk on generosity, ethics and heaven. And the listeners' minds become positive. They become receptive. They've got open, clear, lucid consciousnesses. They're just ready for the truth. And at that critical moment, along comes Mara who showers the audience with gold Oh, hey, look, there's some gold. And they completely forget about Uppagupta. So the next day, Uppagupta, not being easily dissuaded, decides to try again one more time. And the next day, even more people come. They say, Uppagupta teaches the Dharma, and strings of pearl and gold fall from the sky. It's quite a good kind of method, actually. I mean, Perhaps we should try it sometime, Manchester Buddhist Centre, things of pearl and gold. Anyway, so Mubba Gupta starts to give a talk on generosity, ethics and going to heaven. And just at that critical moment when their minds are fully prepared, receptive, lucid, bright, ready to take on the truth, along comes Mara. Only this time he comes along with his sons and daughters and they start a theatrical performance. With heavily instruments, dancing costumes, colours and lights, so you can just imagine they're all looking it up to go through. And then along comes Mar, and he's <laughs> and um, I always imagine this. I don't know why. I always imagine. Do you remember when Les Dawson was in a pantomime? Because so I always imagine like some bloke in uh, dressed up in women's clothes with a bra with socks, sort of stuffed down it, and kind of feather boa and tutu and imagine if that just happened right now les dawson comes on dressed up as a woman (laughs) with this whole troupe of dancers and music and um costumes and colors and lights and all this fantastic performance they all come on and do this kind of big dance and this whole theatrical performance and right at the crux of it the final highlight of the play um Mara, to everybody's applause, comes to garland Upagupta with a garland of flowers. So I'm going to unpack that a little bit. It's not over, but I'll unpack it. Because it's quite an interesting part of the story, because I think this is what happens to all of us. So Mara comes to obscure people's mind at the crucial moment. In that pause in the Dharma where that... Um, is the transition between becoming a happy, healthy human being and the Dharma that helps you to go go beyond being a happy, healthy human being and to realise the truth itself. Mara seems to come at that junction. And you sort of see this in people's spiritual life. Um, Perhaps people come to the centre because you might have experienced a bit of suffering or life isn't terrible, it's not bad or anything like that but it's just not enough there's just this feeling like okay you know we go to work come home do our thing but it's not really what i dreamt of when i wanted to become an astronaut when i was five you know it's sort of it's okay as far as it goes but it doesn't really go far enough um some people come to the buddhist center because they're looking for a bit of a different dimension in their lives life seems a bit gray or a bit closed and we come to the Buddhist centre and we learn wonderful things like the Bhavana and the mindfulness of breathing and um, all sorts of really helpful Buddhist teachings, four noble truths and the eightfold path. And, and uh, we become happier and more satisfied. We become nicer people, basically, more generous, ethical. We live a more fulfilled life. And we get on a bit better with the world. Um, we get at a on a bit better at work we get a bit on a bit better with other people and it's a bit like we get to this sort of point where a happy healthy sort of human being and then there's a bit of a pause like well what next you know you come along to sangha night or the buddhist center and it's a good place it's a positive and happy healthy place but it's st- sort of doesn't go much further than that um and at that point, it's quite easy just to settle down, um, and maybe Mara comes in the form to just slightly distract you. You're not, you know, you're quite a ha- happy sort of positive person at this point, point. and then a new partner comes along, or a new job, or a bit of a new opportunity, and you're in a good space. So you take that opportunity, and um, perhaps your attention is diverted, and you slightly drift away so for um for buddhism this is the kind of critical point this is the critical juncture in the dharma life because um the happy healthy human being is only the beginning and it's at this point when something really interesting can happen so our mind is positive and integrated and it's like the clean cloth that can take the dye Um, it can take on the truth. It can take on the challenge of reality, which stirs you up and stops you settling down. But Mara is trying to seduce you away from that quest for spiritual liberation by distracting you with happiness, with worldly happiness. And I can definitely see this in my meditation. So just when I'm on the point... um, uh, in meditation. So I, because I live at Tirat Loka, I'm on retreat quite a lot. And we do, we do a substantial amount of meditation. In my sort of lifestyle. And I noticed that. Just when I'm really just about to go deeper. In my meditation. And something's about to sort of take off. Suddenly I start playing DVDs in my head. Like DVDs that I wasn't even. Particularly interested in at the time. Uh, but suddenly take on this really fascinating quality. And I can just see my mind sort of, it's just about to go into the depths and then it just comes up. And I replay, actually I replay quite a lot of Buffy. I think I've watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer about ten times in my head. Various ones, probably not the most interesting ones actually, just again and again and again. And uh, when that comes into my mind I think, ah, it's Mara doing his theatrical performance. This is the entertainment that's taking me away from reality. And maybe that's, I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with DVDs, there's nothing wrong with films. Um, Maybe they're a good temporary measure if we need a break. But uh, sometimes there's a feeling where I get absorbed in those things because I'm scared of going deeper. Actually, I don't really want to, I just quite, I like the level that I'm at. The level of consciousness, it's not terrible, it's not brilliant, but it's sort of comfortable. Um, so that's the point where Mara comes just to sort of take you away with his strings of pearls and his gold and his uh, DVDs but he does something more than that as well because he garlands Upagupta with flowers so in the um, early Buddhist tradition as now it's forbidden to garland monks with flowers because it's seen as frivolous And in some versions of the story, uh, Mara gathers the audience around and he says, is this the one you call pure and virtuous? So he's trying to trick Upagupta. He's trying to trick Upagupta by kind of hooking in to the desire for praise. Um, And maybe that's, you know, part of anyone who teaches the Dharma. Part of it is about a wonderful altruistic kind of reason for wanting to spread the great buddhist tradition part of it is because you want some praise and you want people to like you so he's kind of hooking into that with upa Gupta, trying to see if there's something there because of course um in communicating the dharma it's not really about you uh, it's a very very dangerous thing to think if you're communicating the dharma that you have anything original to say because basically it's all from the Buddha or in, in uh, uh, my case in many cases for the Tree Ratna Buddhist order, it's all from Sangarashta. There's nothing particularly new that any of us are saying. Um, so he's trying to show Upagupta up as being a bit self satisfied, and maybe trying to show Upagupta up for being a bit settled as well, you know, settled in his role as a Dharma teacher. So how does Upagupta respond to this? Lupagupta decides to um, garland Mara with a garland of flowers uh, in return. So he says, thank you, Mara. Um, Here, let me offer you a garland of flowers. And Mara is really pleased. He thinks, I've got him. Um, And he, uh, he smiles at the audience winningly and puts his head down to receive his garland of flowers. But as they touch the back of his neck, they become a garland of dead dogs stinking, rotting, dead dogs. And he's trying to get them off. The Mara just kind of of pulls them off, but he can't pull them off. They become too heavy. They're sort of stuck on the back of his neck. And Upagupta says to him, Just as you, sir, have bedecked me with a garland of flowers, which is inappropriate for a man who is a monk, so I have bound around you these carcasses, which are unfit for a man of desires. Show whatever powers you have, but today you have encountered a son of the Buddha. I really love that. Today, show whatever powers you have, but today you have encountered a son of the Buddha or daughter of the Buddha. Such a kind of strong phrase. Um... So Uppagupta's trying to struggle and get this garland of stinking dead dogs off the back of his necks. And he cries out for help. He cries from the highest gods to the lowest demons. Come and help me remove this garland of dead dogs. Uh, But no one will help him. I don't know really why. I don't know if they just think it's quite funny that Mara's got his comeuppance or whether they're too scared of Uppagupta. Who knows? So helpless, he turns to Uppagupta and he says... For years I tried to torment the Buddha, trying all my tricks, yet he remained undisturbed in his meditation on compassion. But you, you monk, you call yourself a follower of the Buddha, and yet you are violent and aggressive. All I tried on you was a small joke, and here you have found me. And Ipa smiles at him and says, Ah, Mara, so you do have some devotion to the Buddha. And Mara stops. And he thinks and his hair stands on end and his mind is filled with light and he reflects on the merits and qualities of the Buddha. And as he does so, he's filled with faith and he prostrates at Upagupta's feet. He promises never to harass the Buddhists again and he vows that in future lives he too will become a Buddha. So it's a very moving sort of episode that even Mara has devotion towards the Buddha. So what does, uh, what's Uppagupta teaching Mara and how does, how does he teach him? Well, it's interesting to see what he binds him with. He binds him with a garland of dead dogs. And sangharacha makes the point that garlands are, are circular. They represent uh, cycles, habits that we get into and can't get out of them. So what Uppagupta um, is presenting Mara with is a vision of existence, a vision of the circular, habitual nature uh, of old habits, of decaying, useless patterns that we get into, of that cycle where we just feel we're going round and round, again and again, forever and ever and ever. Um, the end endlessly turning around the same cycle again and again with no life no growth no freedom we're just stuck in these habits and we can't get them off even though they stink like dead dogs we can't get them off so how do we move out of this cycle this kind of vision of oppression and sometimes i think we do have that you can actually have that as a sort of visionary quality um i've definitely sort of seen that in my my own life i remember once uh having it's hard to describe actually but having a sort of vision of the wheel of life and what that might look like in my own experience and i was truly shocked i remember um uh yeah it was when i was about 19 or something like that i just saw my future I just saw my future just doing the same thing again and again and again. And I had this sense that it wasn't just this lifetime. It was lifetimes of the same thing again and again. And, uh, you know, so we can have this vision. So we need something that's as strong as that to pull us out of that that vision, to offer us a different opportunity. And for Uppagupta, this is faith in the Buddha's virtues. Really what he's asking Upagupta um, to reflect on is the vision of a higher possibility. It is possible to be free. It's a possible to live a life that isn't just going around the same habits again and again and again. Um, it's a vision of the possibility of radical spiritual liberation. And it reminds me actually, there's a, there's a, a lovely story in the Pali scriptures... Um, about this kind of uh, vision it's a story of a young man called Yash and um, he has a party and halfway through the night he opens his eyes and he looks around the party and basically he just sees this scene of a total carnage um, of all these people lying around and there's quite long descriptions of um, the dancing girls who he's hired in his party lying on the floor dribbling and snoring with her hair undone, and uh, all his mates, you know, kind of lounging around. And what seemed really great fun the night before just looked to him like a cremation ground. And he runs away from the palace, he runs away from the party, uh, crying out, this is horrible, this is frightening. And as he runs down, he runs out of the city into the park, and the sun is just rising, and... He runs into the park and there he just sees the Buddha and the Buddha's very calm, very still, just walking very slowly, step by step in his early morning walking meditation. It's a bit like they're seeing the dawn from different sides, you know, Yasha's coming from, uh, coming from a wild night and the Buddha has had you know good rest and is waking up early in the morning to do his, his usual meditation. And there's this kind of meeting of this vision of this cremation ground. And then this vision of total stillness, calm, beauty, and peace. And the Buddha just turns his being towards Yash. And he um, said, when the Buddha turns to you, it's like an elephant turning his whole being. There's a great weight of being. And he takes you completely into his concentration. And he says to Yash... Uh, This is not frightening. This is not horrible. And Yash just calms down and he says, so it is. This is not frightening and this is not horrible. So it's that. It's a kind of vision uh, of the vision of the um, wheel of life meeting the vision of the possibility of spiritual liberation. Um, And what the early Buddhist tradition did is they made a reflection out of this so a very early Buddhist meditation is to reflect on the qualities of the Buddha and it said that when you reflect on the possibility of liberation and what liberation looks like embodied in a real human being you become very happy you become very happy and when you're happy you're concentrated and when you're concentrated you can see more deeply into the way things are so this is what Mara is going through. Um, he reflects on the, quality of, of the qualities of the Buddha. He reflects on a different vision. A vision of the possibility of freedom and compassion. Of limitless wisdom and limitless energy. And he becomes happy. His mind becomes clear and bright. And then he can see the possibility of his own Buddhahood. It's not just that he can see the Buddha's qualities as far away from himself. But he sees the possibility that even he could reach that state. It's not just a vision of of liberation for, you know, some ancient Indian man. It's a possibility of liberation for us. There is a way out for us. And quite frankly, if Mara can do it, I think any of us can do it. So um, sometimes we get that feeling. We have maybe that vision of the the wheel of life or uh, some sort of endless toil of samsara if you like and then we have this desire to be free we have a vision of freedom and it's like a crack that lets in the light um even in the most sort of desperate mental states within those desperate mental states there's a longing for freedom there's a longing for liberation and there's also gratitude it's interesting that what um upa points out to um to uh to mara is uh oh yes you do have some devotion you do have some inkling of the buddhist uh, qualities you have even some gratitude towards the buddha who was very compassionate into you even though you really were quite annoying most of his life you know really trying to undermine his spiritual progress and it's that gratitude that lifts mara out of his negative mental states and gratitude in buddhism is a very characteristic virtue It's a bit like, even if you're feeling dreadful, if you're in a bad mood and you feel stuck, if you can just reflect on gratitude, it will take you out. It's a very, very simple method. But the story continues. So Upagupta agrees to take off the carcasses, which, just in case you're wondering about the ethics of this, were in fact magical carcasses and no dogs were harmed in the making of this story. Um, but in return, he asks a favor of, of uh, Mara. This is a very interesting part. So, Mara, is, um, Upagupta is an enlightened being. He's seen the truth itself, the Dharmakaya. He's seen into the nature of the way things are and he's liberated forever. But he's never seen the Buddha uh, because he was born a hundred years after the Buddha died. And he longs to see the rupakaya, the body, the actual physical form of the Buddha. It's very interesting, that. Why would an enlightened being long to see the form of the Buddha? Um, and it c- occurs very often in the avadana literature. I wonder if it's partly because they were quite near to when the Buddha died. And there was always that feeling of lack. If we'd have just been born a couple of hundred years earlier, or a hundred years earlier, we would have seen the Buddha. Anyway, so Uppagupta feels this lack, and he's never seen the Buddha, but Mara has. And Mara is a shapeshifter, which means he can form any figure that he likes. So he could take the form of the Buddha. So he asks Mara, he says, "Okay, I've done you a favour, you've seen your own potential Buddhahood, Um, so you can do me a favour. And what I'd like you to do is take the form of the Buddha, Amara thinks about that and he says okay, okay, I'll do that on one condition Uh, Upagupta cannot bow down before him because if an enlightened uh, if um, an unenlightened being cannot endure the reverence of an enlightened being if an enlightened being bows down before an unenlightened being the unenlightened being will burst into flames so Upagupta says okay I promise I won't bow down. So he removes the carcasses. Mara goes off stage, enters the forest, and reappears as the Buddha with all the Sangha. So he gets his sons and daughters to sort of become Sariputta and Moggallana and Ananda and all the great sort of figures of the early Buddhist tradition. And they all come sort of trooping back in on stage. And Upagupta is overwhelmed. So the Buddha was meant to have been absolutely beautiful. He was a very, very handsome man. And um, he kind of glowed with golden light. So people would become enlightened on the spot. Actually, I think that's an exaggeration. Maybe uh, they definitely became Buddhists, possibly stream entrance, just by seeing the form of the Buddha. You know, they had this great, huge sort of um, faith response when they see the form of the Buddha. And so Upagupta finally, he sees the Buddha. He sees the Buddha glowing with golden light and he sees all these wonderful, I mean, wouldn't it be great if like the Buddha just walks in here with Sariputta and Moggallana and Ananda and and Mahakashpa and all the great Buddhists that we've read about and read the stories and imagine them. And there he was and he just walks in like that. And Upagupta is overwhelmed. He totally forgets his vow and uh, prostrates at the Buddha's feet, crying out in his devotion. His face surpasses the red lotus in beauty, his eyes the blue lotus, his splendor a forest of flowers, the pleasantness of his mind, the moon in its full brilliance. He is deeper than the great ocean, more stable than the great mountain and brighter than the sun. Get up! So Mara starts screaming at the Upagupta, get up, get up, get up. I'm going to burst into flames. And um, uh, Upagupta slightly comes to his senses after this great long homage to the Buddha and says, Mara, it's not to you I bow, but to the Buddha, of the form of whom you have taken. So luckily, Mara does not burst into flames. And... Um, uh, And it's very clear, this is meant to be, by the way, the first kind of um, point in Buddhist history that anyone bowed down to the form of the Buddha. Because originally when the Buddha, uh, when you'd have depictions of the Buddha, you wouldn't have his actual form. You would have um, an empty throne or empty footprints or um, a tree or a cartwheel to uh, signify the form of the Buddha. So you never actually had his form. But at this point in Buddhist history, the actual kind of rupa, what we call the rupa, the actual form of the Buddha, starts to come in as, a, um, as an object of reverence. So, um, But there's a danger in that. There's a danger in that. There's a danger for Mara, but there's also a danger for Upagupta. Because there's the danger of him seeing the body of the Buddha as permanent and real and enduring. Um, but he doesn't. He says, it's not that I really think like that is the Buddha. Um, it's I'm, I'm bowing to what he represents. So the danger is that in our reverence, uh, we forget to whom we're bowing. And we have to keep those sort of transcendental, uh, transcendent values in mind. So it's not enough for us to have a shrine. You know, you can get these lovely Buddha figures nowadays, uh, even quite uh, inexpensive. You can have a beautiful shrine. You can have a kind of beautiful Buddhist aesthetic, actually. You can have a Buddha in your living room. You can have nice candles and incense. Um, And we can bow to that. We can feel a lot of kind of devotion and reverence and positive emotion towards that. But uh, we have to remember to whom we're really bowing. And what that bowing is pointing to us, pointing out to us. Because it's not about bowing to the rupa, to the uh, candles and the incense. It's not about bowing to that kind of beautiful image. We're bowing towards what it represents. Limitless love, limitless compassion, limitless wisdom, limitless energy. And the real reverence towards the Buddha, uh, which is what he himself pointed out, the real reverence to the Buddha... Is to um, actually practice the Dharma and develop those qualities in ourselves. You know, we don't shouldn't get stuck on just feeling a lot of devotion to a form of the Buddha. We have to become the Buddha. And it's not enough to read a few Dharma books. We actually have to put those uh, put those teachings into practice. And it's not enough to kind of bow down to the sangha. It's not enough just to visit a Buddhist center and, um, you know, make our sort of token Dharma class. We have to really try and communicate with people. Otherwise, we won't have the Buddha and the Dharma and Sangha. We'll have Mara, the Lord of Limitations, in a fancy costume. We have to bow to what it really, really represents. We have to keep in mind that our connection with the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha is not permanent. We have to constantly work on bringing those values into being, into reality. And going back to the question uh, of Upagupta um, longing to see the Rupakaya, it's not that he just wants to see the form of the Buddha. He wants to be, um, he wants to be in contact with enlightenment. So of course he is enlightened, but it just goes to show that uh, enlightenment is just not one thing. So within the the Buddhist tradition, it's not like you're just enlightened and then this sort of light bulb goes off and then there you are sort of set up for life. Um, Enlightenment, as um, Sangharachis calls it, is irreversible creativity. So even the Buddhas need to look up to someone. Uh, Even the Buddhas need to respect and revere something higher than themselves. And even the Buddha went through this process so it said that after the Buddha's enlightenment, um, he just spent a long time sort of processing what was happening and allowing that kind of wisdom uh, and compassion to flow in different directions. And at one point in that process, it sometimes it's said he sat underneath various trees around the Bodhi tree. He sat there for seven weeks and, um, and he thought, well, it's suffering not to revere and rely on someone. Uh, Garva that's where Garva is his name come from It's suffering not to revere and rely on someone so who can I revere and rely on and he looks around and he can't see anyone more developed than him so he decides to revere and rely on the Dharma itself and then the later versions of that story said that when the Sangha attained to greatness he revered and relied on them too so there's obviously a process within within the enlightened mind, which is irreversible creativity, which is a desire to look up, to revere and rely and reverence something higher than ourselves. And that goes on even for the Buddha and even for Upagupta. And um, in a way, I think that sometimes in the West, we tend to cut that kind of desire for reverence off. We sort of see it as a bit childish uh, or maybe... um, We're a bit cynical about it, you know, or maybe we think it sort of undermines our own kind of uh, personal dignity. But for the early Buddhist tradition, this wasn't the case. Even enlightened beings like Upagupta would want to bow down before the Buddha. And you definitely get that impression in the stories of the um, early Buddhist followers, that even the enlightened beings um, bowed down to and revered the Buddha. There's a very beautiful story actually about Sariputta, uh, one of the Buddha's leading disciples, that he realises that he's close to death and he goes to ask the Buddha leave to die. And um, so he's an old man by this point and the Buddha is an old man. And he goes to the Buddha and... um, he prostrates himself at the Buddha's feet, which I think is a very moving image. You have these two old men who who have been friends for a long time, who've really built up the Sangha together and have a lot of mutual regard. The Buddha rejoiced in Sariputta's qualities quite often. Um, and Sariputta comes to take take his leave of the Buddha, gain permission to die. He prostrates himself at the Buddha's feet and he says... So that I may worship at these feet have I fulfilled the ten perfections throughout countless aeons. And the Buddha looks at him with such love and tenderness and says, well, if you must die, you must do what you think it is time for. He said, but please give these monks one more Dharma teaching because they'll never hear a monk like you again. So I find that very very moving. You know, we can sometimes have this impression that enlightenment is a sort of cold knowledge, you know, like, yeah, I got it. Whatever you throw at me is fine, you know. Or even we have quite a static image of of uh of someone in meditation, you know, deeply absorbing this enlightenment experience. But actually it's a communication. It's a communication and um uh, a kind of unfolding of um, positive emotion and knowledge and sharing of the enlightened consciousness. It's an out- outflowing of love. Love is not an abstract thing. It's not a, just an idea you have in meditation. It goes towards people. And um, there was a lot of love between the Buddha and his disciples. Uh, it, was, uh, it was an unfolding, uh, an enriching of that love and communication. It's really the great friendship, and the Buddha described himself in a way as the supreme spiritual friend. So maybe it's not such a strange thing that someone like Upagupta would long to see the Buddha. He longed for that communication, and maybe he felt that friendship from the Buddha, maybe that kinship with the Buddha, maybe he want, felt a lot of gratitude to the Buddha uh, for his own enlightenment, and wanted to express that towards the Buddha himself. So we have the story of Mara and Upagupta. And in a way, the story of Mara and Upagupta is the story of the eternal battle. It's the vision of potential uh, and meeting the lord of limitations. The forces that say, don't change, you know, you can't do it. Everyone's got their own specific personal reason why they can't do it. And it's all a load of rubbish. It's all just Mara whispering into your ear, you can't do it. Um, it's that voice that says forget the struggle of the dharma life and just settle for comfort and it's interesting that within the buddhist tradition the main wrong view is that the spiritual life is not possible the main wrong view and the main sort of form of ignorance is that there are no higher values you know there's no uh, escape from this round of rebirth so, Upagupta transforms Mara by recognizing who he is and giving him a vision of the truth of his life. He gives him a vision that he's stuck in his old habits, uh, going round and round the same things again and again. But he also gives him a vision of the way out. Um, he helps him to recollect his own connection with the higher values represented by the Buddha. And he shows him that those higher values can't be paid an empty homage. To revere them, you have to practice them at ever deeper levels. You have to really engage with what they truly mean. So the last bit of the story is that Upagupta also predicts Mara's future Buddhahood. He confirms that Mara will indeed become a Buddha. He sees his potential and he encourages him. And he helps him believe that his destiny is great um, maybe we could do a bit more of that maybe we could regard ourselves in that line instead of thinking um well we're you know just a bit of an average person on a rainy manchester evening uh, and you know i'm not very good at meditation or you know I'm, I'm all right but i'll just keep prodding along maybe we could just actually think of ourselves as great so that's one of the things that the Avadanas does actually it says um that you yourself Uh, If you vow to do anything, your vows will come true. So if you vow right now to see the Buddha in a future time, the future Buddha, you will. Absolutely guaranteed. You just make a clear intention, possibly in front of the shrine, but, you know, wherever. If you make a clear intention of what you're going to do, you will do that. And it goes through all the kind of um, disciples of the Buddha and says how... They became what they became because they made a vow in their previous lives. So you've got to have a sort of vision of previous lives. I'm not going to go into rebirth, but it just helps. It's a more positive vision generally. Then you're just going to die and that's it. Um, it's much better if you think you're going to die and you're going to be reborn with this really clear, pure intention that's just going to carry on from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime until you will actually see the Buddha. Um, Which is a much more positive way of seeing things, actually. Believing that your destiny is great. And going back to Dr. Ambedkar, this is one of the things. he. I've been reading these speeches that he he gave to women um, in the 1950s in India. And one of the things he says is, you've got to teach your children that their destiny will be great. So these children were born into very, very deprived conditions at that time and um, had a real lack of confidence. They were the sort of... Uh, what he called the depressed ca- uh, classes. Um, people who nece- don't, didn't necessarily have much of an education or, or and the whole society was telling them that they were just going to be like um, street sweepers and excrement cleaners and rubbish tip cleaners forever and ever and ever. And he was saying, no, 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 you don't teach them that they're going to be like that. You're going to teach them that their destiny is to be great. And the thing is that it worked, Um, Because those women did go back and they did teach their children that their destiny was going to be great. That they were sons and daughters of the Buddha. They were sons and daughters of Dr. Ambedkar. And they really believe it. And they're completely shocked, you know, if you think you're just this kind of slimy little worm. Why, Why do you think of yourself like that? You know, you're the sons and daughters of the Buddha. I remember when it used to be a kind of common thing. I don't know if people say it anymore, but apparently somewhere... In some seminar or other, Sangharachita said that uh, maybe we could think of ourselves as being a bodhisattva having a slightly off life. (laughs) So maybe we should just think about ourselves like that. You know, we're just a bodhisattva. We're going to be a Buddha at one stage or another. We're just having a slightly off life. Maybe there was a bit of karma that we needed to work through. Um, Maybe not. Maybe you're doing quite well with your life, actually. But basically, you are going to become Buddhas. So that's great, isn't it? You just sort of get on with it. Um, so yes, your destiny will be great. You're not going to remain a little worm at the feet of the Buddha. You're going to be a Buddha himself themselves. You're going to, um, or you're going to be reborn in a time when, a, when Maitreya is manifest, the future Buddha. And you're going to be able to study under him. So great. So yes, so we've got to relate to that vision of greatness. If Mara can do it who's like the archetypal uh, friend of negligence, then we can do it too. And at the heart of the story is a mystery. The heart of the story is the mystery that an enlightened man longs to see the form of the Buddha. Because even enlightenment isn't the end. Even at enlightenment, you can't settle down.